Well, lately, Angel and I have taken to watch a few of the old episodes of The Joy of Painting by Bob Ross. <laughs> Remember the guy with the afro who speaks really softly and teaches you how to paint? I actually just learned he was part of the Air Force for 20 years, and he yelled all the time. And when he left, he vowed he would never raise his voice again. That's why he's always so quiet. Anyway, the whole purpose of his show is to inspire people that they too can paint. Anyone can paint. And he does make it look easy. In a short 30 minutes, you watch as a blank canvas is transformed into an alpine forest. He makes it look so effortless, such that countless people have been inspired to go out, buy an easel and some oil paints, and make their own masterpiece. However, all too quickly, most people find that painting is not so easy. They do everything Ross says to do. They follow his instructions exactly, but their result is, is nothing close to what he was able to accomplish in a mere 30 minutes. What they fail to realize is Ross makes it look so easy because he's done 30,000 paintings. He's been doing this his entire life. And all those little things you take for granted in art, those are lifetime skills that he developed you just can't do overnight. So, for example, he's able to blend a few paints together to form the perfect hue that he's looking for, and you can't do that overnight. And with the simple, quick flick of the wrist, he's able to make the exact brush stroke he wants, and that took him a lifetime to develop. And so, as a new painter, if you're merely trying to follow his example, it can be actually quite frustrating and discouraging because the skill gap is so vast between you. And so, after a few attempts, many have likewise given up painting, Altogether, because they realize it would take them a lifetime to, to get to such levels. And this discouragement can apply to all skill positions. When you're trying to learn something new or do something new, and you, you have a, an expert teacher who merely says, just, just do what I do. Just follow my lead. Just, just follow my steps and you'll be fine. It can seem unfair. They've been doing this their whole lives. They've been honing their skill. They're experts. You can't just do what they do. You can't just start doing it. It's unrealistic standard, and it can be quite discouraging. I bring this up because some have felt this way similarly with the Christian life. We have as our example for how to live the Lord Jesus himself. And we are told several times to just, just do what he did. Just follow his example. Just be like him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21-22 says, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. You read passages like that, and you might think, come on, that, that's not really fair. And you can't be serious. We're told to follow the example of Jesus. Just do what he did, the one who committed no sin. But we, we can't possibly do that. That's an impossible standard. Jesus was God, right? He's perfect. He had a divine nature. We don't have a divine nature. So how can we ever possibly really be perfect like he was perfect or, or live in such a way that we're, we too are without sin? Or how about this verse, Hebrews 4.15? It says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Have you ever thought, you know, Wait a second, how can Jesus truly sympathize with our weaknesses, with us humans, our temptations? I mean, Jesus was God. He had a divine nature. So it wasn't even possible for him to sin, right? So it doesn't seem like a fair standard or example. 
We can't really follow Jesus. We can't really be expected to live as he lived. We talk about a skill gap. There's an infinite gap. We'll never be perfect like he was perfect. We're not even close. Him being the divine son of God. Even with practice, we'll never get close to his life. If you've ever had these thoughts, it can be quite frustrating and discouraging. It can even lead some to just give up, not bother. Like, I'm not really going to aspire to live like Christ. Yeah, the Bible says he's our example, but I mean, that's just not really the case. But what if I told you, if you've ever had these thoughts, well, you'd be wrong. You'd be very wrong. If you believe you can't look to Jesus as your legitimate, even practical example for how to, to do this Christian life, to live this Christian life, you'd be wrong. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't divine, that he wasn't the son of God. But I'm saying there's more going on here, and you need to know how Jesus, though divine, is still your example for all things in your life as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. You can open your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're making our way through this book of the Bible. And we come yet again to this famous passage, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We're, We're still here. We're not quite through because you'll notice this passage begins with another one of these instances where we're told to merely just follow Christ's lead. Just do what he did. Look at verse 5. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So here's a place where we're told to be selflessly sacrificial like Christ himself. And he did that. Perfectly. But how can we ever really do that? Jesus was God. I mean, remember verse 6? We've studied these verses many weeks now. Verse 6 says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. For the past three weeks, in fact, in case you haven't been with us, we've been reflecting on the deity of Jesus. When he came to earth, he did not lose a single divine attribute or his deity. Instead, he took on humanity, and he was the God-man, true God in flesh. But that, that, that being the case, again, you might wonder, how can, how can he really be our example? How can he be our model for human living? Was he even truly human? I and mean, look, us humans, we're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. We don't know all things. And, and Jesus, he was, right? So how can we say he really was a human? And how can we really be expected to follow him and to live like him? Wouldn't you say? Some would. Being God, it wasn't even possible for him to sin. That's not the case for us, for sure. So it just seems like apples and oranges comparison. How can we really follow him? Nevertheless, the Bible still presents Jesus as, in addition to being truly divine, being truly human. And it presents Jesus as our legitimate model for right living before God. And we need to figure out how this is the case, how this can be, how both can be true, and how Christ truly is our example for life. And that's our goal for today. For weeks, we've been studying this very passage in Philippians 2. We've gone through all the verses several times, actually. And like I said, for the most part, we've actually paid attention to Christ's divine nature. But today we want to give our attention instead to his human nature. 
In the Bible, there's just as much to say and to learn about Christ's humanity as there is his deity, and both are essential to his true person and his true work as well. Realistically, we know that, especially today, the deity of Christ is more under attack, and so the church responds by paying more attention to the deity of Christ, defending it, upholding it. Rightly so. We've done that. You might be interested to find out, though, that in the early church, the humanity of Christ was the battleground. The concept of Jesus as divine wasn't hard for many of the ancient people to accept, to to believe in. But with the influence of Greek philosophy, which viewed everything material or physical as just bad or evil, and all things spiritual as good, the thought that the one true God could attach to himself real human flesh, just unthinkable. There's no way, they thought. So most of the earliest heresies in the early church denied the humanity of Jesus. They taught he wasn't really a human, didn't really have human flesh, a human body. Using today's terms, it's like they were saying he's just a hologram. His humanity was a shell, wasn't actually real, but he really was God. That still is some serious false teaching. For if Jesus was not truly human, in all ways it means to be human, 100% human, he could not have lived and died to redeem humans. Rather, Scripture says he came fully as a second Adam, with the same humanity as the first Adam before the fall, to live and to, to, to work all righteousness, to die on the cross, to, to succeed in all ways where the first Adam failed, basically. Now this goes to say, you might worry more or be more interested in defending and upholding the deity of Christ. And again, rightly so. We've done that for three weeks, actually. But you need to understand and appreciate his full humanity just as much and to know why it matters. And that's what's going to be our, our focus and attention for this morning. So let's, let's do that now. Over the past three weeks, we, we've really kind of used Philippians 2 as our springboard, our launching pad to, to go off and explore the rest of Scripture when it comes to the deity of Christ. We're going to do that again today in regards to his humanity. And I want us to start and think back at the beginning. Jesus, as the Son of God, had no beginning. As we found, he was co-eternal, co-equal with God, the Father in heaven. But in what we call the incarnation, the eternal Son of God joined himself to a human body and a human nature. And the humanity of Jesus had a beginning in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So in Luke chapter 1, the angel announces to Mary that she will have a son, she will name him Jesus. He will have the throne of his father, David. And Mary says, how can this be since I am a virgin? And you might remember Luke 1.35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So Jesus was a son of man and a son of God at the same time. Now, technically, we don't say God became a man, because that's not technically true. God, the Son, did not change his nature. He did not metamorphosize or transform into a human being. He did not lose his divine nature. Rather, God, the Son, added to himself a human nature and a human body. 
The result is that Jesus of Nazareth was one person with two natures, one fully human, one fully divine. And you're all, people always ask, how does that work? In our minds, to a great deal, it's, it's a mystery how that works, how they fit together, how they can coexist. But we're safe simply saying what Scripture says. Right? That's, that's a safe bet. Just say what the Bible says. And the Bible teaches that the two natures of Jesus come together without confusion and yet without change. They're indivisible, yet inseparable. Which goes to say that Christ taking on, the, or taking on a human nature, when that happened, they, they didn't blend together to form some hybrid. So he was not 50% man and 50% God. Rather, the, the paradox is somehow he was 100% man, 100% God at the same time. His divine nature was completely divine, just like God. And his human nature was completely human, just like Adam before the fall. Again, how, how this is possible, we, we don't fully know. How, how, how do you work that out? We, we don't fully know. If anyone does, it's God. God. God knows how to work that out. If anyone can accomplish such a feat, it's going to be God. And indeed, this is truly a divine work. But we can simply confess with Scripture that Christ was simultaneously fully man, fully God at the same time. And so, for example, we see Jesus in Matthew 8. He's asleep in a boat like a human. But the next moment, he stands up and rebukes the sea, calms a storm. In John chapter 11, we see Jesus weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus like a human. But right after that, he commands him to come back from the dead like God. So hopefully this gives you just a little better sense of the person of Jesus. He's one person with two natures, one fully human, one fully divine. Still, though, we want to ask and and explore more, even more than we've done the past few weeks, how these two natures relate to one another, coexist with one another while Christ was on earth. And and bear with me, you'll see why this matters, why this is actually extremely practical to know. Just bear with me. But we know these two natures did not cancel each other out. But how did they coexist? And here I want to reiterate and take deeper some things we've already learned from Philippians chapter 2. Our original passage in Philippians 2, don't take it for granted, it's, it's one of the defining passages on the incarnation. I mean, we're just going through Philippians, but the reason I wanted to stop here and, and spend some extra weeks here is this is like the top passage on what happened when God the Son came to earth. This, this is it. And we've learned that Jesus did not give up his divine attributes He did not give up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Or or rather, he did not give up his divine attributes, but he did give up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Excuse me. Nothing was changed or lost in his divine nature, but he simply chose to live as the Father willed as a man. He lived fundamentally as a man. And again, this explains Philippians 2.7 which says that he emptied himself. And the verse itself explains what that means. Look again at verse 7. He says, He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. Those participles, they're all modify and explain the emptying of Christ. And as we've studied over the past weeks, his emptying was not a subtraction, rather an addition. 
Notice it doesn't say Jesus emptied something from himself or out of himself. He emptied himself, referring to all of his divine prerogatives. Not a single attribute, but all of the rights and privileges that were his as the son were set aside. This is a way of expressing Christ's ultimate humility and and taking on a human nature. And that human nature would veil his divine nature while he was on earth. And you'll notice in verse 8, just, or verse 7 rather, just as verse 6 says he existed in the form of God, in the incarnation, verse 7, he took on the form of man, the form of a bondservant. And the same word for form is used in verse 6 and verse 7. So his humanity was just as real as his deity. They go together. The same word is used to describe. He is the form of God and the form of a man. His humanity was not merely a shell, but real flesh and bones, a real human nature, a real human body and nature. And his humility and being the God, God the Son and taking on a human nature was already extreme. But it went further. Again, keep reading verse 8. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So coming to earth, Jesus, the son, he was already humbling himself enough in taking on a human nature and veiling his deity. But he allowed his heavenly glory and divine nature to be veiled even further in humbling himself according to the Father's will, which was for him not just to to take on human nature and and to live as a man, not, not at as if that wasn't enough, humbling enough. But the Father willed for the Son to take that human nature and his human existence all the way to death, even death on a cross, the most shameful way to die. And he did so to purchase our redemption. As we know, that that was always the plan. This is the whole point. The whole point of it all was for him to die on that cross as the God-man. Redeeming mankind required a true human, a second Adam, who would fulfill all righteousness, live in perfect obedience, and yet die as a substitute for humankind. Jesus had to be a true man to do this. After all, there's no concept of death for his divine nature. He had to be made like us in all ways, yet without sin. And so Jesus came as that second Adam, fully human in every way, minus, of course, a sin nature. He had to come this way, otherwise redemption could not be accomplished. Now here's hopefully a little illustration to to tie that together. Imagine you've just bought a brand new car, fresh off the dealership. It's just literally brand new. It's spotless. It's it's got that shine on it. It's, It's glorious. It's beautiful. The car you've always dreamed of. You drive it home. You're smiling. It rains, though, and you live down a long dirt road. And so as you drive, your your new car is getting just covered in mud. It is caked in mud. The whole thing is just now filthy. You show up to your home and you say to your spouse, look at our new car. And she's like, what what did you buy? It looks like a piece of junk. It's just covered in mud. All she can see is the mud on the exterior, which, which makes the car look less than it really is. In reality, though, the car is not less. You've taken nothing away from the car. Instead, you've only added to it. In fact, the brand new car, the shiny car, has not been diminished, hasn't been lost, nothing has changed. It's still there. 
the glory of the car is still intact. A mere wash would reveal that. It's just that after the rain and the mud, something has been added to the car that prevents its splendor from being seen by those who don't know better. And to the undiscerning eye, it just looks like a crummy car, your average car. This is an imperfect but still helpful way to think through the incarnation of Jesus. The glory of the Son of God didn't lose anything when he came to earth. His majesty, his deity, his splendor remained intact. But per the Father's will, he added to himself a human nature, which in comparison, it's like that mud on the car. His glory was not lost, but it was covered. So when other people saw him, though, all they saw was was the mud. All they saw was the human nature, his humanity, and he looked like just, just a guy, just like any old guy. And furthermore, it was the Father's will for Jesus to live like this for his entire time on earth. So for the duration of his entire life, he had to drive around in that muddy car, so to speak. Everyone thinking, that guy, you know, what a bum driving around in such a car. Not seeing the glory underneath. This is such a magnificent car. Nobody knows. They just see the mud on the outside. His whole life was like that. All of his divine attributes, they were right there but they could not be utilized. They were, as we've said several times, they were possessed, but not expressed. That was part of this humbling. Jesus accepted restrictions and limitations on the expression of his divine qualities, all so that he could really live as one of us, truly live as a human. This was the only way, by the way. And so all this goes to say, from his birth to his death, he lived truly like us like a a man, like a woman, like a human being. Although his divine nature was intact, he experienced life not according to his divine nature, but according to his human nature. And so he, he lived and was seen fundamentally as a man. This is why, as you read the Gospels, you see Jesus get hungry and thirsty and tired. He needs to eat and drink and sleep and rest. Sometimes he's just downright exhausted after his ministry. His body functions like a normal human body. His hair grows like our hair grows. If Jesus did not eat and drink, would he die? Of course, like a human would die. His body needed food and water to survive in that time. We also see Jesus feel pain physically and emotionally. He cries real tears. He suffers inner anguish and sadness. He also feels compassion and love. Physically and emotionally, Jesus lived as a man and was seen as a man, albeit, of course, without sin. And so you remember that one time Jesus comes back to his hometown where he grew up, and he sees all those people who watched him grow up. Only now Jesus had begun his ministry, and he's working wonders, walking on water, you know, opening eyes of the blind. And these people are like, well, what is going on? Who, what happened? We know Jesus. He's just... The, the carpenter's son, Matthew 13, 54 through 55, the crowd says, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? You understand, Jesus did not work any wonders while growing up. His divine nature was completely veiled. They only knew him as just a boy, as a man, like, like any other. 
Only after his baptism did Jesus start letting some people know there's actually more going on under his human nature. There's actually some glory underneath that mud on the outside, so to speak. But growing up, all those people saw only the car covered in mud, so to speak. That's all they knew of him. And his humility was such that he just had to accept that and live that way. He was just a man, they thought. The only real difference is that Jesus was without sin, so surely he stood out a little bit. They probably thought he was weird or an oddball. We'll come back to that point later, actually. But look, did Jesus grow physically? Yes. His divine nature didn't grow at all, but his human nature sure did. Also, did Jesus learn? Some people have trouble saying, well, yes, no, I'm not sure. What am I supposed to say there? Well, the answer is yes. Again, his divine nature had nothing to learn, but his human nature did. His human nature did not possess omniscience, knowing all things. That's not an attribute of humanity. He took on all human attributes, real human attributes. Therefore, since he chose to live as a man, he had to learn everything we learn. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn the alphabet. He had to learn to read. He had to learn God's word. He had to read the Bible and memorize verses. His divine nature possessed omniscience, knew all of that, of course. But Jesus was not relying on his divine nature while he was on earth. He was not tapping into it on purpose. So he had to learn everything the hard way, like math, for example. Just like all of us, just like you, he had to learn it all. This does not diminish his deity in any way. It just showcases he really took on a true human nature and he really lived like one of us. And this is the only way to explain some verses in the Bible, for example. Luke 2.40 and verse 52. It says of Jesus, the young Jesus, it says the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. And verse 52 says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. It's talking about Jesus growing in wisdom. I thought he, he already has all wisdom. Well, it's his human nature. He's growing as a boy. Or Mark 13, 32, where Jesus says of the second coming, he says of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. How do you explain these verses? Many Christians who rightly hold high the deity of Christ, they get a little tongue twisted, trying to make sense of Jesus growing in wisdom, growing in strength, not knowing something. How do we make sense of this? Well, now we can. With a proper understanding of the incarnation, it actually makes perfect sense. For example, did the divine nature of Jesus know the timing of the second coming? Of course, he knows all things. Did the human nature of Jesus know the timing of the second coming? No. And so did the person of Jesus know while he was on earth? Well, no, he didn't. Because the Father did not reveal it to him, and Jesus did not cheat. He did not secretly tap into his divine nature to find out. He was limiting himself in all those ways, limiting his own access to his own divine powers. That would violate his whole purpose for coming which was to live truly and authentically as a second Adam. There could be no cheating. They might say, what about all the wonders he worked? Wasn't that kind of like cheating? 
using a little divine power there. Well, look, his miracles did testify of his divine nature. He, he taught, I and the Father are one because of his miracles, remember? But understand, his access to his own divine power came by reliance on the Holy Spirit. Do you realize Jesus worked no wonders until after the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism? That happened for a reason. That inaugurated his formal ministry, and that's why the Spirit came to him. You ever wonder, like, why did the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus at the beginning of his ministry? Like, what's the point? He's already divine. He's already God. Why does he need the Spirit? What does he gain by the coming of the Spirit? You ever wondered about that? And the answer is, the divine nature of Jesus gains nothing by the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's already God the Son, in perfect fellowship with God the Spirit and God the Father. His divine nature gained nothing by the coming of the Spirit at his baptism. But his human nature had a whole lot to gain by the coming of the Spirit, namely access to God's power. And if Jesus, while on earth, was self-limiting his access to his own divine power, then he was going to need the Spirit to still testify of the power of God, which he did, in fact, possess. And so this is what we find. Remarkably, Jesus living as a true man in utter dependence on the Holy Spirit for power, for life, for godliness. He lived in a man in reliance on the Spirit to provide strength, knowledge, wisdom, and at times even supernatural power. The human nature of Jesus, like all humans, is beset with weaknesses. But the Spirit provided the strength Jesus needed to walk and to work before God. And this is all merely the apostolic understanding of Jesus. And so Peter himself preached in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He said to the crowd, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He lived as a man empowered by the Spirit. He was divine, but he chose to take the life of a man. He did not lose any of his divine glory, rights, or power, but he did limit their expression to truly live as a man. He accepted the limitations of humankind to live as one of us. He was therefore tried, tempted, and tested in all ways as we are. But he prevailed every time by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a perfect place, since I just mentioned that, to talk about the sinlessness of Jesus. Because when you hear all this, I hope you're tracking with me, you might say, okay, we get all that, and sure, we can grant Jesus was tested in all ways. But look, it's not like he could even really sin, right? That wasn't possible because he's divine. So it's not like he was ever in real danger of sinning. And that's not like us. Like we're in real danger. Like we could actually sin here. Our temptations are real. They feel real. And many times we lose. But Jesus being divine, he could never actually lose. So does that diminish his example in, in, in all things, right? In overcoming temptation, it can't be the same because he was God, right? And if that's true, it does invalidate Christ as being an example for us to follow when it comes to his resistance to temptation. Now, he was divine, but that understanding is, is missing something. It's incomplete. And you need to see how Christ's temptations were genuine. 
just like you experienced them, and his victories were real. And therefore, your real example to overcome yourself. So first, let me answer. Was Jesus able to sin? The short answer is no, he wasn't. It's true. He was impeccable in his divine nature. That word means not able to sin. And in his divine nature, the nature of God, not even possible to sin. In fact, Scripture teaches in his divine nature, couldn't even be tempted by evil. However, in the incarnation, his temptations were still real. So you can say, well, how? Because Jesus resisted temptation and he obeyed God every time, not in reliance on his divine nature, but fully in reliance on his human nature and the same spiritual resources given to you and me. So you have to make a distinction between why Jesus could not sin and why Jesus did not sin. There's a difference. He could not sin because he was God. And in his divine nature, it's impossible for him to sin. And as a person, it's impossible for him to sin. The divine nature made it, in reality, impossible for it to ever happen. So he could not sin because he was God. But that's not why he did not sin. He, he did not sin for another reason. Namely because he was simply utilizing the spiritual resources given to his human nature. He did not sin according to his human nature. He overcame. Another illustration that is going to help you. Uh, again, I quote Bruce Ware in The Man Christ Jesus, a perfect illustration. His picture as a swimmer. He wants to break the world record for distance swimming. And I think it's something like 70 miles. And so he's getting prepared. He's got some concern because you swim that long. Your muscles could just start cramping up unexpectedly uh, and you, you could drown quickly. So he arranges to have a couple of boats follow close behind, like 20, 30 feet behind him at all times. And they'll be ready to, like, to scoop him up if anything happens in an instant to keep him from drowning. But they'll be far enough back so they won't interfere. They're not going to help him in any way. And so the day comes. He dives in the water. He begins his attempt. The safety boats, they're, they're right there behind him. They're not interfering. They're not helping in any way. But they're there just in case if, if some emergency strikes. But they're not needed for by his own ability, by his own strength, he, he completes the 70-mile swim. He breaks the record. Now, consider two questions. Could he have drowned? Well, we'd say no. Why not? Because the rescue boats were right there. And pretending they were you know, perfect rescuers, he could not have drowned. They would have ca captured him and, and brought him to safety before anything bad could happen. So he could not have drowned because the, the, the boats were there. But another question, why did he not drown in this instance? And that answer has nothing to do with the boats. The reason he did not drown is because he, he swam successfully. He swam in his own power and he finished the race and he, he broke the record by his own power. And this is just what Jesus did. He came to live as a true man and therefore he refused to be helped along in any way by his divine nature, including facing sin and temptation. The divine nature was there, but it was not being utilized to overcome sin. He was only just relying on his human nature and spiritual resources given to him. 
And just as if the swimmer was helped by the boats, it would void his world record attempt. So if Christ was helped by his divine nature in any way, it would likewise void his whole purpose for coming. His whole reason for coming would be lost, which was, again, to live as a perfect man, a second Adam, pleasing God in all ways, resisting all temptation, fulfilling all righteousness to be that perfect sacrifice on the cross. Had to do it in his human nature alone. Now I mentioned these spiritual resources. And you might wonder, like, what's that? And there are three primary ones to be aware of, and I want you to be aware of these, so I'll mention them. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and prayer. It's It's what he relied on. Jesus chiefly relied on these resources and they empowered him to live rightly before God. And what do you know? These are the same spiritual resources God gives to us today to do the same thing, to live rightly before God. In fact, God expects us to live and to walk and to resist all temptation in the exact same way as Jesus, simply by relying on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and prayer. Yeah, Jesus, he had a divine nature, but that actually had nothing to do with him resisting all temptation and overcoming sin. Every single day, every single moment, he was in constant dependence on the Spirit, the Word, and prayer. And these empowered him to walk righteously and to glorify God. So in Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses, being tempted in all ways as we are, yet, yet without sin. It means it. We can take that seriously. He really is our sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like in our human nature to face temptation. Yet he overcame. He knows the natural weaknesses of the human flesh, albeit he never had a sin nature. Still, he never sinned. He overcame and resisted all temptation, leading us in the way. Jesus had to succeed where the first Adam failed. So he had to face all temptation according to Adam's nature, human nature. But by reliance on the Holy Spirit, the word of God and prayer, he prevailed. And again, these are still the means of grace God gives to his people to walk rightly before him. You've got the word of God, the scriptures, which is how we we know where to go. It's our source of truth, points us in the right direction. You have prayer, which expresses trust in God and seeks his power for help to obey. And you have the spirit through whom God actually delivers the power we need to walk righteously before him. You know, this is why Jesus said to his disciples, look, it's better if I depart and the spirit comes because when I go up, the spirit comes down and that's better. How is that better? Because God the Spirit now dwells in you, giving you power from within to walk like Jesus walked. So think of of a sailboat, since we're using some swimming analogies. Picture the Word of God. It's like your steering wheel. It's like your rudder. It points you in the right direction. Think of the sails. That's like prayer. Prayer is hoisting the sails, getting ready to move. And then the wind, well, that, of course, is the Holy Spirit who actually propels the boat forward. But you see, you need all three to advance. You need all three working together. If you have wind and sails, but you're pointed in the wrong direction, does you no good. If you have a rudder and wind, but no sails, well, you're just going to sit there, pointless. 
And similarly, a rudder and sails can get you nowhere without wind. So you need all three to work together. And so perhaps, perhaps in a way you've never even realized before this morning or thought of, Jesus, he actually models for us precisely how we are to live the Christian life day by day, moment by moment. He was like really doing it. He was actually living just by the spirit, the word and prayer to be perfect in righteousness and how he lived in all ways, even overcoming sin. For this reason, he really is our example. Like he can legitimately be our example because he lived legitimately as a man. So when he told his disciples, follow me, he actually meant it in all ways. Like in all ways, not just in some, we, we don't like discount like the whole temptation part, that's not real. No, in all ways, we are to follow him. We're called Christians because we are to live life in all ways like Christ. And you can only really make sense of this by grappling and understanding his humanity like we, we've done this morning. Now I should point out, living like Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. You understand that, right? Jesus is our example. That's true. That's not actually the main reason he came. His mission was not just to give us a good example to follow, although he is our example. Instead, his primary mission was death, even death on a cross. And on that cross, a transaction was taking place because we, we're, we're more like that first Adam after the fall. We're, we're fallen. We're sinful. We've sinned against a holy God. We, we do not resist all temptation. We fall and we have a lot to pay for before a perfectly just God. We've merited his judgment, his wrath. But Christ primarily came, as we learn in Philippians 2, to die on the cross for that reason, to pay our penalty. He was our substitute sacrifice. Being divine, he was able to pay for all of our sin debt, our eternal sin debt he could pay for. Being the Son of God, he could drink down the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. But you see, it's only by being a a perfect human, a true human, could he be a sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice for us. We needed a perfect offering. A lamb's not going to do, a bull's not going to do. We need a man who himself is spotless, unblemished, lamb of God, and that was Christ. Fully man, fully God. It's the only way he could die for men and women like us. This is why Jesus came. And so the path to eternal life, it's not about being a good person. It's not about doing good things. It doesn't get you into heaven. It doesn't make you a Christian. Going to church, reading your Bible, praying, that doesn't make you a Christian or get you anything before God. The whole point is you can't be good enough. You can't do enough good things to earn your way into heaven. This is why we say it's only by faith in Christ as your Lord, your Savior. By grace, God gives you this salvation to those who believe. And so it's only by submitting to Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, believing in him as God, as man, the one who died on the cross and paid that price for you. Only by that does God grant you life, new life, eternal life. And if you haven't, I would urge you to do this today. Call upon Christ as your Lord and your Savior today. You believe in in Jesus as the divine Lord, the God-man, the one who died for you, 
and you'll be saved. You'll be transformed, in fact, born again. And then only in that new birth that God gives you all the resources you need to now live the rest of your life for him. And that's when all this stuff comes into place. As you heed the call to salvation, the call to follow Jesus with your entire life, which can only be done by faith, then God grants to you the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit comes to dwell in you. Then you'll find the Word of God open up before you would testify. You read the Bible, and it's like another language. It doesn't make sense. But you come to Christ as Lord. You believe in Him. He gives you the Spirit. The Bible opens up. It's now all in living color. It just comes alive. It makes sense. The scales fall from your eyes. You can testify like Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God, it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see the word of God for what it really is. And at the same time, also the channel of prayer opens up to you where God now hears you through the mediator of Christ, who is now your Lord, and the intercession of the Spirit, who now dwells within you. And God even beckons you to draw near to him through prayer to find help in a time of need. I just read Hebrews 4.12, right after in verse 14. The writer says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Through the Spirit, through the Word, through prayer, God is now giving you all the same resources that Christ had and used to live before God. Now we have that too. And today, as we've wrestled with a right understanding of Christ's humanity from Scripture, I hope you appreciate from time to time, you know, when we do like doctrinal preaching, it's a lost art, but it's so valuable because only when you wrestle with Scripture and something that can be as challenging as Christ's human nature but you do so, you're rewarded. And today we're rewarded with a deeper understanding of how we are to live our own lives, our own Christian lives. Christ is put forth as our example for so many reasons, and we, we need to see why and how that is. And just by way of reflection now, understand that as you appreciate and grasp the inhumanity of Jesus and how he lived, it totally informs and transforms how you live and how you fight sin, for example. How you daily now seek to, to wrestle against sin. How do you do it? What should you do? Well, just, just do what Jesus did. We can say that. It's not insulting. It's not discouraging. Just do what he did. Just follow his lead. Like Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. How do you do that? Well, you can't control the wind. But God, he's already promised to give it to you when you need grace and strength. He's there. He promises it for a time of need. you got to do your part, though, which is hoist the sails, point the ship in the right direction. And you do that by relying on the word and prayer as constant lifelines to God. 
use them to resist temptation, and to live rightly before God. Do you think it's coincidence when Christ was tempted by Satan? Every time, how did he respond? By quoting scripture. And you might recall in that same passage it says he was being empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Spirit led him in that wilderness. He was no different. This is how he overcame temptation. In Ephesians 6, for example, we learn of the armor of God, which helps us stand firm against the schemes of the devil, right? You remember that? You study closely, though, what's the armor of God all about? And you look at it, it's all really just different ways of expressing the same thing. It's the truth of the gospel. It's all about bringing the truth of the gospel to bear on your life, uh, your lives and your temptations. Wielding the truth of the gospel against the deceitfulness of sin. It's all about picking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And no wonder right after Paul says in the next verse, by the way, don't forget to pray at all times in the spirit, the spirit, the word, the prayer, or prayer rather, they come together. They're meant to work together. When you get it, it's actually not that complicated. Just think of a sin issue in your life right now. No one's going to ask you. Don't worry. Just keep it to yourself. But what are you struggling with right now? What sin maybe got a hold of you right now? And then I'll ask you, what have you done about it? Do you expect it just to go away by itself? Because that's not how it works. First, are you being pointed in the right direction? Is your ship sailing in the right direction? Do you even know where you're supposed to go with this thing? Are you being led and guided by the word of God in regard to your sin? Can you think of even one relevant Bible verse that you can bring to bear on your sin struggle? Not like it's just like a magic charm that you say and it goes away, but God promises he uses his word to convict us, to rebuke us. Sometimes we need that, to correct us and then to guide us. And so Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. By the way, Jesus memorized a ton of scripture, and that's why. And then in addition, have you prayed? Have you sought prayer, God's help, to overcome your issue? Have you wrestled with God in prayer like, like Jesus did daily, moment by moment? Or do you only ever pray in guilt after you've already fallen into your sin? You realize Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed before the cross for a reason, because he needed that strength before the trial. And likewise, you should be praying before, not just after you've, you've sinned and now you're repenting. Yeah, pray then, but try praying before too and see if God will deliver grace and strength in a time of need, which he promises to do. Your strength is not enough. That's the whole point. Even Christ needed God's power through the Spirit. So be encouraged and then pray. It's like a sailor wondering, you know, why, haven't, why hasn't the ship moved in a week, a month, a year? Meanwhile, the sails are down. It's like, well, what do, you, what do you expect? You have to hoist the sails. You have to lift up prayer. If you find yourself, yourself rather still losing the battle against a, a given sin in your life month after month, year after year, you have to ask, are you really drawing near to the throne of grace meaningfully before God? Don't blame a lack of wind. You've already been given the Holy Spirit, so it's not his fault. You have to do your part, God says. And so pray. We all need help. 
And so Paul also mentioned in Ephesians 6, we need to be praying for one another too. This is why we have the church, another means of grace, where we can help one another fight sin, live this Christian life. We can help one another bring the word of God into our lives to pray for one another and so forth. The spiritual gifts are all about building up one another. If you feel your struggle is just too great for you, well, seek some more help. Seek out some some greater counsel. Seek myself out or the elders or even a mature believer who can, who has maybe a greater knowledge of the word and can bring it to bear on your issue or we can pray for you. But I hope you get the point. And in general this morning, that by better beholding the humanity of Jesus, you can learn more yourself of what it means to, to truly be a man or woman of God. After believing in Jesus by faith, we begin this process called sanctification. It's also called Christ-likeness, growing in Christ-likeness. And now you see why. That's what our lives are about now, following Jesus, becoming more like him, being molded and shaped, reshaped into his image. And so I pray this morning you're renewed in your own efforts to seek the Lord and to see him. It really is so profound to learn, as we've done this morning, that Jesus, he lived his perfect life just as one of us. He truly lived just like one of us in reliance on his human nature and spiritual resources. Though divine, he did it all. He fulfilled all righteousness. He even went to the cross as one of us, for us. And so he really is our model to follow. And even on top of that, God has now given us all the same spiritual resources that Christ utilized to live and to walk righteously before him. Just think of that. Just think on that a little longer. And then use them. Get to work. This transforms how we struggle against sin. This transforms how we serve one another. It's coming full circle now back to Philippians 2, although we've looked at this. Again, verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what attitude? As we learned, it's one of selfless, sacrificial service. And you might think, as we studied Philippians, it is impossible to truly empty yourself of all selfishness and actually treat one another as more important than yourself. Like it says in verses 3 and 4, like, who's ever really going to do that? We can't do that. But Christ did it. He did it first. And he did it as a true man. And he did it for us. He did it to show us the way that we might now do it for others, to serve God and to serve others. So let's join together now in following the Lord in all ways, serving him, serving one another, just as we've been served by Christ. For, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you again this morning, thanking you and praising you for your, your perfect plan, your wisdom. We, we feel we need to say, like Paul in Romans 11, how, how far exceeding are the riches of our God, the depth of his knowledge and wisdom, Lord. You, you go beyond our thoughts. We can't even grasp you or attain you. You're so high and lofty. And we see this in what you did in your son Christ taking on a human nature, living as a true man, though still retaining his deity, 
It, it can baffle our minds, Lord, but we're safe in saying what Scripture says, and there we learn that Christ lived as one of us for us, that we might truly follow in his footsteps. And may we, may we be renewed afresh to do that this morning. Lord, you, not only had, did you send Jesus to actually pay for our sins, to die on the cross for our forgiveness, as if that weren't enough, Lord, you've also given us the Spirit, God, the Spirit to dwell within, to empower us in the same way Christ was empowered on earth, to use the word, to use prayer, to live as he lived. This is profound to think of, Lord, and, and how richly blessed we are. This is why your word says we've already been given all spiritual resources and blessings in Christ. We, we have all, all that we need. And so we trust you to work. We trust you to, to give grace and strength in that time of need. We are needy. We're still fallen. We, we need help all the time, Lord. But we know you're there. You've already answered. And so help us to now just to be faithful, to walk like Christ through the word and prayer and to lift up your name. We do this, Lord, for your glory. We're, we're not earning anything by this, but simply your praise. You are worthy for all that you've done for us. And, and may we lay down our lives at the feet of Christ, our Lord and Savior, for his name. And we do that now as, as we depart and yet still sing your praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.